start planning your dream garden with the help of the Garden Trellis Company. For more than 30 years, we've been making beautifully crafted joinery for the garden. The RHS-endorsed range of top-quality joinery includes trellis and slatted panels, fencing, gates, planters, stores and more for people who want to make the best of their outdoor space. The products are made in our Essex workshop from responsibly sourced timber, and with each order, we plant a new tree. Get 15% off RHS-endorsed Prestige products at the Garden Trellis Company when you order online or by phone with code RHSPODCAST. Visit gardentrellis.co.uk to find out more and order. So about three years ago, I was in the Lindley Library looking at documents, as is my way, and I came across an intriguing letter from the late 1800s from somebody called O. Harrison complaining to the RHS that they'd come top in the RHS's National Horticultural Exam. Could they have their scholarship, please? Which is what the RHS offered people who came top in the exam. And underneath that letter was a rather snotty reply from Reverend Wilkes, who was the secretary of the RHS at the time, saying, nope, you're a woman, you can't have a scholarship because the scholarship's not intended for women. We only train men at our garden at Chiswick. And then O. Harrison, whose name was actually Olive, writes back and says, it says nothing in the rules about that. Please, can I have my scholarship? And digging underneath, I found a reply from Reverend Wilkes saying, it was never anticipated that a woman would try. That was why it wasn't in the rules. Now, I got quite intrigued by this little exchange and wanted to find out, was Olive alone? Was she the only woman who took the exam? Was she the only woman who wanted to train as a professional gardener in 1898? Now, I went down that rabbit hole and found out she wasn't. The ex-director of Kew, William Hooker, said that for a woman to garden professionally was an almost impossible thing. And my research found out that, well, yes, it was almost impossible, but not quite. There were women who tried and succeeded. Now, although over 100 years ago, women were largely excluded from the professional world of horticulture, women have been tending to the earth for as long as we can remember. They've been herbalists, farmers, homesteaders, gardeners, working the land to reap what they've sown. This week, in honour of International Women's Day, we're giving space to a few of the women who found meaning and fulfilment in the gardens they've created and through the flora that they've grown. We're exploring the power that exists in our own connection with the rich environments we inhabit and the myriad ways we can care for and cultivate it. Writer and gardener Alice Vincent will open for us, talking about her quest to find out why exactly women grow. For a long time I thought that I gardened because my grandparents had gardened, but I sort of, deep down, I knew that wasn't really the case. We'll then travel up north to RHS Garden Harlow Car. Susie Kelly, who works with their edible team, will let us in on how to grow her absolute favourite veg. I have such fond memories of my time spent just pottering around the greenhouse in the hot sun with the deep, heady smell of tomatoes in the air. Before author Victoria Bennett, gives us an honest look at the apothecary garden she built on an old industrial site. Just things kept dying, things kept not surviving on me. That's what it felt like. And I looked at this ground and I just thought, I've got to create something, I've got to see what will grow. 
You're listening to Gardening with the RHS with me, Fiona Davison. Once Alice Vincent started gardening, she never stopped. She felt a pull to her urban garden, drawn by both the power and the simultaneous lack of control she had over the soil. And because she's a journalist who makes sense of things by writing them down, she quickly began documenting her own experiences with her plot in London. In 2020, she published Rootbound, Rewilding a Life. And just a couple of days ago, she released another book, one that we'll be discussing today, called Why Women Grow, Stories of Soil, Sisterhood and Survival. So without further ado, here's Alice. Why Women Grow didn't start out as a book. It started out as an inquiry. The idea for it was born in the summer of 2020, when we were all living quite stratified, separate lives. And yet, conversely, the weather was beautiful and more people than ever were turning to the soil. And I felt really, really separated from the women in my life who gave me stability and meaning and joy. And so what I now realise I was looking for was connection. I was lonely. I was really lonely in a way that I didn't even realise I was lonely. And I started to literally make a list of the names of women whose work I had admired, whether online or in real life, who I was interested by, to speak to them about their connection with the earth. And I started to do this, and the answers that I was getting, even from those first very tentative interviews, were so astounding and intimate and generous that I realised that I had to keep going. And I ended up talking to more than 45 women around the country and further afield. I was interested specifically in the connection between womanhood and the earth because I think I was trying to understand both of those things in myself. I was trying to understand what my womanhood was as someone in her early 30s who had just got engaged, who was feeling kind of not quite ready for the next stage of my life, but that it was closing in upon me. And I also wanted to understand my own relationship with gardening and with the ground, which was hugely important for me, but I couldn't say why. For a long time, I thought that I gardened because my grandparents had gardened, but I sort of, deep down, I knew that wasn't really the case. And so I took these questions out to other women. And there's also a huge part of Why Women Grow, which is about a desire to tell stories that have been buried. I think gardening and tending to the soil and raising crops and growing herbs and understanding the power of plants is something that women have done for centuries, often invisibly, and we've been very unaware of it because we haven't told their stories. If a man gardens, it's sort of seen as a hobby, whereas women are often tending to plots all the time. And it's sort of just seen as one of the many tasks they do in the house. So it was important for me to capture the lives and the stories of ordinary, everyday women who had these powerful connections with the ground, because I believed that people did. I really wanted women to feel seen. I wanted their work to feel seen. I wanted women to read this book and relate it to what they did and do and find in the garden and realise the inherent power of it. I interviewed everyone from a rehabilitating prisoner who had never gardened before. And during lockdown, when the prison that she was in became a very claustrophobic space, she found herself taking some work outside in the greenhouses on the prison estate. 
and she became completely hooked on this process. And because of lockdown, the prison is an open prison, so she should have been able to have visits from her children, but she was unable to. And as a result, she turned a lot of her maternal affection towards the plant she was raising in the greenhouse instead. They became almost like ersatz children for her. And that was clearly, you know, a, quite a powerful thing to witness. I went to the Cotswolds to speak to a herbalist in her 70s named Anne, who has created a garden almost entirely dedicated to the stages of womanhood. It's an absolutely beautiful creation. One of the most feminine spaces I've ever been in my life. You walk through a tunnel of roses that represents the birth canal and you go around in the middle of a spiral in a paradisical garden, which represents the end of life. And everywhere in between, you go through these gorgeous beds, all of which are grown with herbs and medicinal plants that are there to bolster the health and well-being of a woman at every stage of her life. So as you can see, there's a lot of different stuff going on, but there were some overarching themes that kept on cropping up again and again, and these two were one of control and one of space. And I think this is because even if you only have a window box, if you are tending to the earth, you are making the space something that you want it to be. Whether that's for beauty, whether that's for food, whether that's for creativity, whether that's to make the world a bit greener. And it came up in the words of a woman named Sarah who I interviewed in Cambridge. And she said, gardening is about taking up space and that's something that women aren't always meant to be doing. And I think that sums that up really well. We live in a patriarchal world which often wants to try and diminish women, make us feel smaller, pay us less. And yet in gardening, we can fulfill these spaces with what we want. That's something that I think resonates very deeply. Control sits side by side by that. You know, gardening is a form of control. And again, often as women in the world, we don't have as much control as maybe we'd like. And yet in our gardens and our growing spaces, we can make things happen. That's very powerful too. Speaking to all these women and collecting their stories and then writing them again genuinely changed my life and it changed my understanding of who I was. It was enormously grounding. And I suppose if I could sum up what I've learned, it's that womanhood takes so many different forms. And that allowed me to realize that I could create a womanhood on my own terms. And that was so freeing and so potent that it enabled me to go on and make those life decisions really confidently. We're on the cusp of another year's growing season. I'm sure there's some people out there who are tempted to get involved for the first time. And I suppose if there's one thing I want to take from Why Women Grow and pass it on to you, it's that there's a lot of courage. There's a lot of quiet courage in gardening and you need courage for life and you need courage to garden. Don't expect it to look perfect. The beauty lies in all of the mess. And just go and grow something and see what happens. Thanks there to Alice. Why Women Grow is out now. You can find a link to the book in our show notes. On top of this, Alice has created a podcast with the same name, where she engages in deep conversations with women who garden. You can find a link to that in our show notes as well. It's really interesting that Alice mentions a sense of control over space. 
That's something that comes across really strongly when you look at books that were written by women and for women about gardening. They've often got a very possessive title like My Garden or Every Lady Her Own Flower Gardener. Before the 20th century, when property law meant that when a woman married, her property went to her husband, having a sense of space that you could own and control must have felt really precious. But of course, there are many complex reasons why women turn to the earth and start planting. The call to garden takes on many different forms. For RHS grower Susie Kelly, it was all about developing a closer relationship to the food that we eat. Before turning to horticulture, Susie worked as a barista. She loved working with food, but felt disconnected from what she was serving. She wanted to know more about where our fruit and veg actually come from and how to properly grow it. Now she works on the edible growing team at RHS Garden Harlow Carr, where she gets to take care of a huge variety of produce. However, even amongst the variety, she still has a clear favourite. Spoiler alert, it's tomatoes. Today she's here to share her tips on how we can sow tomato seeds this spring. I have such fond memories of my time spent just pottering around the greenhouse in the hot sun with the deep, heady smell of tomatoes in the air, getting green fingers from the stems, breaking off the side shoots, tying them in. And it's just a very kind of mindful, peaceful time where it's just you, the tomato plants in the sun, working your way through them, checking over them. It's a, a really nice horticultural activity to do. So there are two types of tomatoes, cordon and bush. Cordons are also known as indeterminate, or some people call them vine tomatoes. Bush tomatoes are known as determinate. And the difference between the two is that bush tomatoes grow quite a compact, as the name suggests, bushy habit. So they tend to be smaller. They tend to suit being grown in a pot or hanging basket. Cordon tomatoes need to be staked, so that either means putting a cane, like a bamboo cane, in or growing the tomatoes up a string or a wire to support the plant as it grows. A great place to start when deciding to sow tomatoes, first of all, is to choose what variety you want. Before you do that, you might want to think about whether you're going to grow them in a greenhouse or whether you want to grow them outside. So if you wanted to grow them outside, a good variety to choose would be something like a veranda red. It's a small bush variety of tomato and it grows really well in a pot or you can grow it in a hanging basket because it's got quite a small habit. Another good tomato to grow outside, this is a cordon variety of tomato, it's called Crimson Crush. Both Veranda Red and Crimson Crush have a good resistance against blight, which is a disease that can affect the stem and the fruit of tomatoes and causes them to rot. If you want to grow tomatoes inside a greenhouse, then a good variety to choose and a very popular variety is Sun Gold. Again, that is a cordon variety of tomato, so it grows quite tall and you want it to be supported with a stake or a string. Lovely orangey-yellow cherry tomatoes, and they're very early to crop. Another variety to grow indoors 
or you can grow it outdoors. It grows well under glass, is black opal, and it's quite unusual because it's a dark purple colour. Again, it's a cherry tomato and very delicious, uh, sweet and umami flavour of the black opal. So right now is a great time to start sowing your tomato seeds, particularly if you want to grow them in a greenhouse. If you want to grow them outside, you might want to wait a little longer towards the end of March or into early April. So what you need to do is get yourself some nice fine seed compost. Ideally, you want to water that first because tomato seeds are really small and you can risk sort of washing them away or moving them around if you water afterwards. So take your seed tray or your little cell trays, fill them with a nice fine seed compost, then pop in your seeds, just sow them quite thinly over the surface of the compost. And then you want to just cover them with a fine layer of either vermiculite or a fine layer of just sieved compost. When you've sown your tomato seeds, you want to keep them in a warm place. Ideally, they want to be around about 18 degrees Celsius to germinate. You could achieve this by putting them on a nice, warm, sunny windowsill. You could use a heated propagator or you could put a clear plastic bag over the seed tray or over the pot just to give them that little bit of warmth whilst they germinate. And they should germinate within around two weeks. Once you start to see signs of germination, you want to take that cover off or take them off the heated propagator or heat mat. But you do want to keep them in a really bright, sunny place to stop them from growing really leggy, trying to reach for the light. Once your seedlings have got two what we call true leaves, which look a bit different to the first two leaves that come out, which are known as the seed leaves, you want to prick them out and that means gently lifting them out of the compost really, really carefully. Ideally, you want to hold them by their leaves and not the stem, just to avoid damaging the stem. And you want to put them into some fresh compost in small nine centimetre pots. Plant them right up to those seed leaves, plant them nice and deeply, gently uh, firm them in. Once you've pricked out your tomato seedlings, they'll probably take around about a month to grow on in that small nine centimetre pot. You want to wait until they're about 15 to 23 centimetres tall before you pot them on into their final location. A really good way to check if they're ready is both their size, but also it's really good to check the roots of your plant. So you want to just pop the plant out of the pot, check that you've got nice, white, healthy looking roots, a good root system. If you haven't yet, that's not a problem. Just put them back in the pot, maybe give them three or four more days, check them again, maybe even a week or so. And then once they've developed a good root system and you can see nice, healthy white roots, that's a good indication that they're ready to pot on into their final location. When you add a tomato to any meal, it just gives you that little taste of the garden. They just taste out of this world good when you've grown them right and they've had good sun, good watering and feeding. They're so fresh and just give you such a burst of flavour in your mouth. Also, I think growing tomatoes is quite a topical thing with the supply chain shortages. So why not? have a go at growing your own instead and not having to worry about going to the supermarket to buy them. Thanks Susie. So it's time to get sewing.
You can find further details on how to grow your own tomatoes on our website. For our final feature of the day, we're exploring gardening as a healing force, something that benefits both the land and the soul. Here's author Victoria Bennett to share her own story about building something beautiful and vibrant in the midst of great despair. It was 2012 and my son was four years old and it was four years after my sister had drowned, my eldest sister had drowned. We were struggling financially and we could no longer afford the house that we were renting and we needed somewhere safe to live. The house came up on a new social housing estate in rural Cumbria, near to where my parents lived, and we applied and got a place. And because the housing estate had been built on top of an industrial site, it had been a former stoneworks, actually for a couple of hundred years, so you can imagine how much stone there was. <laughs> and then on top of this, about no more than a, a spade's worth, I think, of topsoil put on top, and then some grass, so that was it. <laughs> At the time, because of the grief that I was experiencing, my normal creativity wasn't really happening. And it also felt like just things kept dying, things kept not surviving on me. That's what it felt like. And I looked at this ground and I just thought, I've got to create something, I've got to see what will grow. And my son being four was excited by everything. <laughs> So we started talking about what could we grow and he wanted to create this magical garden and started drawing all these pictures of fantastical things. And I was looking and thinking, I don't think I could quite manage that. <laughs> but, you know, what, what would grow here? So I started to look at what was growing around on the building site, on the rocks. And it was plants like Rose Bay Willow Herb and Great Mullein and Oxide Daisy and all of these sort of what I suppose are termed weeds growing and I just thought let's see what we can grow on this broken ground. I started to look at these plants that were the weeds that nobody wanted and they had all this incredible history and uses you know the kind of daisy being used for bruising and for respiratory complaints and things like that. So, you know, these sort of simple things that are just there underneath our feet have this great history. So then it was like, well, you know, what's the history of using plants? I started to look at that idea of the apothecary garden and you've got like, you know, some Chelsea Physic garden and this sort of very formalised apothecary garden. But then you go back and it was the realm of the midwives and the healers and, and often women and often rural women who were not of the elite classes had this, this wealth of knowledge that was passed down. But then land use changed, land ownership changed and medicine changed. So these things that had been the realm of like sort of folk medicine got sanctioned into a more formal medicine and then that became very much the sort of territory of the elite and often male educated classes. So I kind of fell in love with these weeds because they were they were so unwanted and so unloved and yet held all of this promise and that sort of realising I think that the nature of it being an apothecary garden it was both 
an apothecary garden in terms of what we could grow. So we were learning from the plants what they could do, but also it was an apothecary garden in that it was a healing garden in and of itself. It was healing the ground where it was damaged from this industrial use, but it was also healing me sort of personally in terms of grief. And so that sort of sense of an apothecary garden is kind of all-encompassing of it. Initially, it was incredibly hard work because everything we did, we had to dig out first. Our days were spent digging rocks out, moving them, and then finding other rocks and moving them back into the garden, like some sort of Sisyphus loop that we were on. It was just, we were just carting rocks around and digging rubble out. And then we, we started to look at sustainable gardening methods as well, so we started to introduce things like hugo culture beds using what's rotting down and thrown away so you know old wood and kitchen waste and compost and decaying leaves and all these things that are piling them in and building so we were using everything and we had absolutely no money it had to be wild and it had to be free or cheap <laughs> so as well as kind of rescuing plants from the building site we also rescued what was waste from the ground so we reused a lot of the rock that we found to build beds and we reused old drainage bits to build plant things and we basically just built the garden out of everything we could find and everything that was to hand and added to that sort of donations from friends and family and <laughs> I think one of my favorite parts was the ponds and I really loved the ponds the first one we did was more of a sort of bog garden, so that had like meadow sweet and yellow flag iris and wild garlic and white nettle, and it was just a sort of wonderful growing space. Although at one point, <laughs> one point three ducks decided to move in, and it was tiny, it was <laughs> sort of tiny, tiny little bog garden area. And I looked out one day, and these three ducks had moved in. They filled the whole area. <laughs> so. And then we also had a micro meadows in there. My son grew micro meadows. He created these winding paths and, and you know these areas. So we had the meadows and we had woodland areas and we had the, the bog gardens and we had the vegetable patch and the fruit trees and we had all these different areas in the garden. He felt really rooted. And that was one of the things I wanted to, to make sure that he felt really grounded and rooted in a way that I didn't necessarily have in myself at the time or earlier in my life. And I think it, it allowed for an opportunity for him to learn a lot of things, science, horticulture, whilst it being playful and peaceful and healing for him. And he'll carry that through as well because he did see something created out of nothing and he was part of that as the garden started to grow there was an enormous sense of life growing with it that these things were possible that, that life could grow and that gave me hope and for me hope is not a wishy-washy kind of you know sort of twinkly sparkly thing hope is like the oxide daisy it is resilient it's hard it can hang on and it keeps us going and it is the thing that will plant the seed later on so for me, the garden represented hope. And as it grew, it showed me that, you know, if I just would hang on, 
to that hope that things change and things do die away and some things don't work. Not all the gardens survive, not all the things work. And there was a point where, where my son reminded me of what I had taught him, which is, you know, every living thing must die. And the garden kept reminding me of that, that you have to let go, you have to let things die away, you have to give things the seasons that they need and not need to control it all, not need to hold on to it all, but it's enough to kind of gently nurture and sometimes nudge and then stand back and let things find their own way. It's easy to want to kind of cut grief out and go, I'm, I don't want to do that, I don't want to know that, I don't want to feel that. But if I had done that, then I wouldn't have found all of the joy that was in there as well and all the delight, the uh, delight not in grief, but the joy that was held in that grief was the love that was held in it. And I think if I'd cut that out, I wouldn't have found that in myself and the garden helped me learn that too. Victoria wrote a memoir about her experience creating her special garden called All My Wild Mothers. You can find a link in our show notes. It's been really fascinating to hear what different women have taken from their garden and to think a little bit deeper about why we garden and what we get from it. But gardening's also very practical. And so before we go, our chief horticulturalist and fellow presenter Guy Barter will give us a few ideas of things we have to do in our gardens this week. Winter is slowly giving way to spring and it's time to get ready for the April rush by preparing the ground, bit of cultivating some fertiliser. Hardy seeds can be sown, sweet peas for example, vegetables like peas and lettuces, all sown outdoors and of course cornflowers and nigella and other hardy annuals are worth sowing now. It's a great time to pot up plants too that have outgrown their pots. That includes houseplants that will start growing now once the light levels come up in April. And also any plants you've overwintered from cuttings perhaps taken in the autumn or summer last year. Potted up now, they'll grow all summer with a minimum of care and attention needed. It's also time to start begonia and dahlia tubers. Pop them up, put them indoors and they'll soon sprout and can go out in the greenhouse or a windowsill or even a sheltered place outdoors. Thanks Guy. Well, that's about it for today. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider giving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. It's the very best way to help us share the love of gardening. So from me, Fiona Davison, goodbye and thanks for listening. As we look to the year ahead, start planning your dream garden with the help of the Garden Trellis Company. For more than 30 years, we've been making beautifully crafted joinery for the garden. Our range of top quality products, endorsed by the RHS, includes trellis and slatted panels, fencing, gates, planters, sheds and stores, and all made in our workshop in Essex. Make the most of your outdoor space and get 15% off RHS-endorsed Prestige Joinery products at the Garden Trellis Company when you order online or by phone with code RHSPODCAST. Visit gardentrellis.co.uk to find out more and order.